I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue reading through the New Testament chronologically, today we're reading just from one gospel, the Gospel of John. John chapters 15 through 17. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So here's where we are with regard to Jesus' ministry. Jesus is addressing his twelve on the eve of his crucifixion, which began that address in John chapter 13. And of course, they are in Jerusalem. In John chapter 15, Jesus explains how the spiritual kingdom works. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known unto you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another." Chapter 15 is a continuation of the discourse of John chapter 14. This all took place on the eve of the crucifixion after they observed the Passover supper, which actually began in John chapter 13. Jesus has been talking about individual entry into the spiritual kingdom as in personal salvation. Now, specifically, here's how this spiritual kingdom operates. Jesus is the vine, God is the vine dresser in verse 1. Verse 2 begins... Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I'm convinced that this speaks of the disobedient, unprofitable believer whose physical life is cut prematurely short because of continued disobedience, such is the case with the disobedient believers in Corinth referenced in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Verse 2 continues, And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This purging or pruning of verse 2 
It is undoubtedly the maturing process of trial that obedient believers undergo in the process of living the Christian life. The Word of God is that pruning instrument. If you'd like to know more about the process of trial, then look at my article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled, Trial, Testing, and Temptation. Verse 3 is a universal statement of fact with regard to the purifying effect of God's Word on believers. It's simple. Staying in God's Word makes one spiritually clean and strong. Verses 4 and 5 indicate that our entire success as believers rests upon the empowerment of Jesus Christ to the cleansing effect of the Word of God, as seen in verse 3. In other words, one cannot abide, verses 4 and 5, without the continual cleansing effect of the Word of God. Now, verse 6 is a little difficult. Jesus may be presenting one of three scenarios. The first scenario being the unregenerate have no part in Christ, thus the fire there would be understood as hell. In scenario number two, those who were in the vine but ceased to bear fruit were overtaken by men and lost their public testimony. In the second case, the fire would not be understood as hell. Since the word abide comes from the Greek word meno, which means to remain in the same state, this scenario is a strong contender. In scenario number three, Jesus is talking about Judas in this verse. After all, this is the very night Judas betrayed Jesus and is doing so at the very time that Jesus is making this very presentation. If this scenario is the correct one, then the usage of the Greek word meno speaks of Judas failing to remain with Jesus. Since Jesus identified Judas as diabolical early in his earthly ministry in John chapter 6 verse 70, We know that Judas was never spiritually abiding in Christ, only physically accompanying Jesus. If Jesus is talking about Judas here, then the fire is a reference to hell. Now, if you're really interested in getting to the bottom of the meaning of this verse, then you need to look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, where I've provided a word-for-word Greek-to-English substitution for the words of this verse, taking into account the parsing of each word as well. It's interesting to me that the Greek aorist tense is used in the verse up to the words dried up, but the present tense is used for the balance of the verse. While the Greek aorist indicates a point in time, usually past tense, rather than continuing action, which is the definition of present tense, the tense change is curious. That would seem to lend credibility to scenario number three, as we mentioned earlier. Maybe Jesus is addressing the Judas betrayal issue. Verses 7 and 8 indicate that the natural process of the believer is to bear fruit. But what is this fruit? This fruit is obviously the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Those two verses say, from the Apostle Paul, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such there is no law. That's the kind of fruit that we expect a believer to bear. The Greek word pharaoh in this passage is found in verses 2, 4, 5, 8, and 16. Therefore, the bear fruit of verse 16 cannot refer to winning people to Christ as some people have taught. Jesus would not have changed definitions of the same word within the context of the same discourse. Instead, it refers to the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in believers' everyday lives. Notice the emphasis on brotherly love that Jesus makes in verses 11 through 17. 
Well, here's the reality. When the Holy Spirit is working in believers' lives, it's because they are abiding in Christ, the cleansing of the Word of God, and subsequently being led by the Holy Spirit. Since the leadership of the Holy Spirit manifests itself in love, according to Galatians 5, and 23, such a believer will naturally love other believers. That linkage is further supported by the fact that earlier in this discourse, Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, the following. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. There, a few minutes earlier, he cites brotherly love as the commandment that he makes reference to in John chapter 15, verse 10. Here's what he said in that verse. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So, the first attribute of the Holy Spirit leadership listed in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, is love, which just happens to be the commandment of John chapter 15, verse 10, and the commandment of John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. But as Jesus continues, we see that not everyone is going to appreciate you. We read now in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 27. Verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also have hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Well, the world hated Christ. They will hate his followers as well. Understand this. The world today ridicules Christ and Christians. When believers stand up for their principles, the world order of our day and in Jesus' day, that world order does everything it can to discredit us. Jesus quotes from Psalm 69 verse 4, in verse 25 here, when he says, But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Back then they hated Jesus because he disrupted their religious practice, practice that emphasized form over sincerity, actions over attitude. They practiced a hypocrisy that really didn't focus on the true worship of God. Regarding Christians in this world, Here's how Paul expressed it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He said, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And John said it like this in his epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. It's clear. 
taking an uncompromising stand for the principles of Jesus Christ, will draw fire from the established world order in Jesus' day and in our day. Whenever you find someone living for Christ 24-7, he's usually categorized as a religious fanatic. And the religious form-over-substance people take offense to that. People, for the most part, want just enough religious activity in their lives to relieve some guilt, but that's the extent of it. When they see someone who takes his Christian lifestyle seriously, the sense of guilt they feel often causes them to want to characterize the normal as abnormal. And what about those religions that proclaim a love for God at the exclusion of Jesus Christ? Well, notice verse 23. It says, Jesus speaking here, He who hates me hates my father also. Well, that's consistent with the words of Jesus earlier that same evening in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's definitely a package deal. And here it is. There is no favor with God without the acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as one Savior. Then Jesus puts his comments into perspective in John chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Chapter 16 is a continuation of the discourse of John chapter 14. This theme regarding the world's disdain for our faith continues from the end of chapter 15. Don't be caught by surprise when the world doesn't warm up to your walk with Christ. What might one expect? Well, notice these sobering words in verse 2, when he says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Let's face it, believers who abide in Christ are just never going to be very popular with that worldly crowd. Earlier in this discourse, Jesus referenced the Holy Spirit as the helper that would soon come in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 26. He mentions it again here in verse 26 in the context that the Holy Spirit will bring us comfort or help when believers are hated by the world. Jesus will elaborate additionally in John chapter 16, verse 7, which we'll get to in a few moments. We continue reading now with John chapter 16, verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. 
All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy." A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Earlier in this discourse, Jesus had told them that he was leaving to prepare a place for them, he said so in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. He points out here in verses 5 and 6 that his disciples seem to be focused on the loss of presence of Jesus rather than Jesus' destination and future work. For that reason, Jesus goes into some detail regarding the coming empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. The word helper used here comes from the Greek word parakletos. It's only used five times in the New Testament, John chapter 14, verses 16 and 26, and in John chapter 15, verse 26, John chapter 16, verse 7, and then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it's used, but there it's translated advocate instead of helper. While the New King James Version uses the word helper and advocate in 1 John 2, 1, the word advocate is also used in the King James Version in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, but comforter in the other places that we just mentioned. Jesus clearly identifies this helper to be the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 26. Therefore, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is the equivalent of the presence of Jesus Christ. It's important to understand that all believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. The Holy Spirit facilitates our salvation to begin with, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, there can be no salvation. As a matter of fact, Paul says so directly in Romans 8, 9, when he says this, Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. A further benefit of the Holy Spirit's presence in believers is spiritual understanding. Look at verse 13. It says, He will guide believers to understand spiritual things. Now, verses 8 through 11 seem a little cryptic. Let's read them again. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Here's the sense I think we derive from these verses. The Holy Spirit comes after Jesus has ascended. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
The Holy Spirit will identify distinctions, and three are listed here. The first one being sin for those who have rejected Christ as Savior. The second distinction will be righteousness for those who accept Jesus as the finished work for salvation. And the third distinction is condemnation or judgment, which has been passed on the ruler or the prince of this world, that being Satan. The Old Testament looked for messianic redemption, an act that Satan was determined to thwart. At the sacrificial death of Jesus and subsequent glorification, Satan's attempts had all failed. Incidentally, the Greek word for prince in verse 11 in the King James and ruler is archon, and that's in verse 11. It's never used as a description of Jesus himself. Moreover, the ruler is rather clearly identified by Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 30, when he says this, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Paul refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus also attributes these activities to the Holy Spirit after Jesus has ascended to heaven, and here they are. He says he will guide you into all truth in verse 13, and he will tell you things to come in verse 13. In verse 14, he says, he will glorify me, meaning glorify Jesus. And in verse 15, he says, he will take of mine and declare it to you. It's clear that the Holy Spirit is the key to sound doctrine as well as the key to godly Christian living. In verses 16 to 22, Jesus goes into some detail about his crucifixion and ascension. Verse 20 frames the discussion when he says, Most assuredly I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. The disciples will be sad when Jesus is crucified. But Satan's forces, well, they'll be happy. However, in the final outcome, sorrow shall be turned into joy. Beginning in verse 23 of chapter 16, Jesus talks about prayer power and persecution. Verse 23. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The disciples are starting to understand the necessity of the crucifixion here, the physical absence of Jesus, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that will follow that. Prayer power will be experienced by anyone who prays in the name of Jesus. 
Now, many believers are confused about what it means to pray in Jesus' name in verse 24. If you wonder about that, we talked about that extensively in John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Uh, Click on the link on the Bible track notes for today, and you'll be able to read that discussion. His disciples then indicate that they're beginning to get the picture in verses 29 to 30. Jesus then explains to them the persecution that's upon them and prophesies that they will scatter. Verse 33 is an assurance verse for them and for us, which says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now for the prayer in John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, 
but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Well, Jesus offers this prayer prior to entering the Garden of Gethsemane. This, by the way, is not the prayer in Gethsemane reported in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew 26, 36-45, Mark 14, 32-41, Luke 22, 39-46, and John chapter 18, verse 1. This prayer of Jesus is divided into three parts. In verses 1-5, through Jesus' prayer is concerning himself. His earthly ministry mission accomplished, only the crucifixion and resurrection to go to complete the transaction. Life eternal here is defined by Jesus as knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. And then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the disciples. He prays for their deliverance from the evil assault of the near future. Judas gets dishonorable mention in verse 12, where his betrayal of Jesus is shown to be his destiny. He was not a good man who made a mistake. Jesus describes him as the son of perdition. If you'd like more insight on that, then consult my notes on John chapter 6, verse 70. Verse 12 takes on an additional significance in John chapter 18, verse 9. John tells us that this was fulfilled as Jesus protected his disciples from harm at his capture. You'll also notice that Jesus prays for his followers, not that they would withdraw from the world after his departure, but that they would refrain from indulging in the world's godless activities. And then, third of all, Jesus' prayer for all believers, present and future, in verses 20 through 26. He prays for the unity of all believers. It's not until this prayer is finished that Jesus and his disciples enter the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 18, verse 1. Now, one might ask, if Jesus is God, why did he pray? The answer is to be found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let's read those verses. Verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus took the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That was the mortal state of Jesus at the time of this prayer and leading up to his crucifixion. At that point in time, he communicated with God in prayer just as we do. In his prayer, Jesus declares in verses 17 through 19 that we as believers are sanctified, meaning set apart, through the cleansing of the word of God. Thus, we are sanctified by the truth of the word of God because Jesus sanctified, the Greek word hagiadzo there means set apart, Jesus sanctified himself for the crucifixion. It's vitally important that believers understand the value of embracing and studying God's word, the Bible, as a regular routine in their Christian walk. Strong believers spend regular time daily reading and studying God's Word. And, by the way, that's why I'm committed to providing this commentary to all believers everywhere. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. 
Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.